Well, when I was, uh, whenever I was 17 years old, it was, it was my last year of high school, and it was my first opportunity to play tackle football on a team. So I was homeschooled growing up, and at the time, uh, here in the state of Arkansas, there weren't as many, uh, the, the laws were such that there weren't as many opportunities for homeschool students to participate in a sport like tackle football. But a, whenever I was a senior, there was this new league that started up. Uh, it's a faith-based football league. Uh, but it was the league's first year. And so, as you can imagine, there were some hiccups along the way. There were some things that, you know, probably down the road, if the league had continued past one year, they would have liked to iron out and, and make more uh, organized for the future. Well, a few months before the season was to start, we got an email from the league director uh, pointing out that, you know, hey, we may not have enough players signed up to start this league. And that was all I needed to become this league's number one recruiter. I didn't want to lose my opportunity to play football. So for the next several weeks, I was messaging everyone I knew that could strap on a shoulder pads and helmet, and many that I didn't know. Um, I became the number one salesman for this football league. Uh, I, was, I was passionate about football, and I wanted to play, and so I wanted everyone to, to know that, hey, there, here's an opportunity for gridiron glory, and you could be a part of it. And so um, I, I was able eventually to uh, get a guy named Luke. He ended up being the fastest guy on our team. Uh, he, he was actually a public school student at Lake Hamilton. And uh, through him, he got a couple of, his, of other guys. And for whatever reason, these guys hadn't joined Lake Hamilton's football team. Lake Hamilton's a big school, so maybe that's part of the reason. But these three guys ended up being some of our best players. One guy was like six foot four, just freak of an athlete. Uh, there was Ryan. He ended up being our best receiver. So um, long story short, uh, right, right as the season was about to start, we had just enough players to field a team. We had 13 players. So we'd have to play both ways. We wouldn't have much time to catch our breaths on the bench. But hey, at least we would have tackle football that fall. Well, I, I share this story uh, because... It's, it's kind of an illustration of how we are eager to share with others that which we are passionate about. And as, you, as I reflect back on my own eagerness to share with others the opportunity to throw a leather ball around on a grass field, how much greater opportunity do we have as Christians, as not the director of some startup football league, but the king of the universe, our savior who has died to save us, has invited us now to call others into his kingdom, to call them from death to life, from the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of light. What an opportunity we have. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning in the great commission, in our risen king's commission in which he calls all of us to recruit people for his kingdom and to, uh, and as we'll see what that looks like. So if you turn in your Bibles with me this morning 
Turn to Matthew 28 as we come to the very end of our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, you can find this on page 784 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 28, page 784. We're going to read verses 16 through 20 this morning. And in recent weeks, we've followed Jesus through his darkest hours in dark Gethsemane, in the judgment hall of the chief priests and of Pontius Pilate, in the torture and abuse and execution of the cross. And yet, in the midst of all of this, we've seen the fulfillment of God's promises. We've seen the power of God displayed, ironically, in the seeming weakness and shame and defeat, seeming defeat of the cross. That even there as he died, Christ was accomplishing his greatest victory and the salvation of his people and confusing and routing his enemies. And we've seen that Christ has been raised from the dead just as he promised. And now we not only have we seen the the faithfulness of Jesus keeping his promises, but we've seen the unfaithfulness of the disciples. How in their Lord's darkest hours, they turned their backs on him and fled, thinking only of their own safety. As Peter denied him, as Judas betrayed him and committed suicide. Well, how would Jesus respond to the failure of the 11 disciples that were still alive, since they've proven themselves so worthless, so faithless, so cowardly. Will he fire them? Will he find better and more faithful servants? Will he lecture them severely, maybe put them on probation or something? Surprisingly, Jesus, after his resurrection, he he calls for the 11 disciples to meet him in, in Galilee. He calls them My brothers, my brothers, though they in their fear had disowned them, he now graciously re-owns them. And he would now graciously bestow upon them the honor and the dignity of being his apostolic witnesses and founding his church in the world. He would now reinstate them and make him his chosen ambassadors So let's now read of Jesus' meeting with his 11 disciples on the mountain in Galilee. If you found Matthew 28, we're going to start in verse 16. And would you please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. Well, you'll notice in verse 16 that the disciples met Jesus on the mountain that he had 
to which he had directed them. And it may be that Matthew mentions their meeting place because throughout this book, some of the most important moments have occurred on mountains. Some of the most significant things about Jesus in the book of Matthew are revealed on mountains. And so maybe Matthew is signaling to us that once again, something important about Jesus is going to be revealed here. In the Old Testament, people often met with God on mountains. Think of Moses at Mount Sinai. And here, the 11 disciples meet with their God on this mountain and they worship him. Now we also see in verse 17 that some doubted despite the fact that Jesus had foretold his resurrection multiple times, still it was so remarkable and so amazing that some of his disciples could hardly believe their eyes. It must have seemed too good to be true. And yet we see that they went from here, from this meeting, with confidence and lived the rest of their days testifying about the risen Christ. Now Jesus, he begins to speak to them and give them an important command. And it's a command, by the way, that is not just for these 11. It didn't expire when their, when their lives expired. Notice that Jesus, he says at the end of this command in verse 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. To the end of the age. Not just to the end of your lives, but to the end of the age. Which and, uh, in Matthew's usage would refer to Christ's second coming at the end of this present evil age when Jesus returns from heaven to earth to judge the world in righteousness and usher in the age to come in which there is joy and righteousness and bliss, the age of heaven. And so Jesus is promising his presence in verse 20 to the end of the age. And as I'll, as I'll mention, um, as I'll talk a little bit more about at the end of this message, I, I believe this has to do with the fact that he's, he's promising them help as they fulfill this commission. And so this is a, a strong signal to us that as Jesus gives this command, he has in mind that this is not going to be fully carried out just by these 11, just in their lifetimes. That this is a commission and a command that is going to extend throughout this age and that applies to all of Christ's disciples, including us here in America in 2023. And so as we read this, we read this, that, that this is something that applies to us as well. This is our commission in these verses. It was theirs and it is ours to the end of the age. As we think about this commission of our risen king, let's notice first its basis. Its basis in the universal authority of King Jesus. And then secondly, we'll consider the commission itself, make disciples of all nations. That's the main command in these verses. And then the rest, thirdly, we'll consider how we're to do this. How we're to do this. The, the way Jesus instructs us 
to do this, baptizing and teaching. And then fourth and briefly, we'll consider the encouragement of our king's continuing presence. I am with you always. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. First and foremost, uh, first of all, let's consider the basis of Jesus' commands to make disciples of all nations, the basis of the Great Commission. We find in verse 18, uh, we, can, we can tell that it's the basis, the reason, because in verse 19, he continues with, go therefore. And so in verse 19, he's, he's, when he says therefore, what he's about to command them is based on what he's just said based on what he's just said just before in verse 18. So what does Jesus say there? He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. So this is the basis, all authority, that our risen king is the cosmic ruler of the universe. On the cross, they mocked his claim even to be the king of the Jews. The Roman soldiers mocked him, you know, king of the Jews. You know, where's your power? Where's your authority? Where's your army? You can't even deliver yourself. You're, you're powerless before us. The, the Jewish people and, and leaders, they mocked him. This is the Messiah. This is the king of the Jews. He can't even save himself from the Romans. How will he save us? But even as he died, Christ proved to be the greatest Savior of all. And as he rose from the dead, as he was raised from the dead in power, he showed his power even over death itself, something no other ruler has ever done, had ever done. Christ defeated the very grave. Jesus has taken dominion of the earth. You know, as, as Adam, think about right at the beginning of the Bible, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion of the earth and subdue it. And they were, the first Adam, our first forefather, was supposed to rule the earth as God's vassal king for the glory of God. But what did he do? He chose to join in Satan's rebellion instead. But Christ, Christ has taken dominion of the earth. Christ has dominion of earth and of heaven as the last Adam, as, as the founder of a new humanity where the first Adam failed. The second Adam, Christ, has succeeded and superseded him. For Christ as the God-man He's, he now says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is universal authority. When our Lord had humbled himself from the glories of heaven and made himself poor, you think about when he was in, in one of his weakest moments in the wilderness, emaciated from hunger, matted with sweat and dust and fatigue, and there the tempter came to him, Satan, and he said, if you will but fall down and worship me, you see all these kingdoms of the world and all their glory, I'll give them to you. But Jesus refused. And his loyalty and his obedience to the Father's will, and he who humbled himself has now been exalted 
through his obedience and been given a greater dominion and a greater kingdom than all those that Satan assumed he could cobble together and bribe him with. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This means there is no authority that has not been given to Christ. There's no realm in existence anywhere, no hidden kingdom, no small corner of the globe or of heaven over which Christ is not the proper authority and over which it will one day be unavoidably evident that he is king. On that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's only a matter of time. And all the rulers and dictators in this world, they rule on borrowed time, only as long as our king permits them. And though now people live as though they are their own kings, the day is coming when they'll no longer be able to ignore the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So think about when Jesus says this, when Jesus says this, after he's been mocked, after he's been crucified, as one who is perceived to be an imposter. But here he is standing before them alive, having walked out of the grave, overpowered death itself. Think of, think of the disciples standing there and still seeing the, the nail scars in his hands and feet. And as this one says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now what is he going to do with this power? What might the disciples have expected Jesus to say next? You know, all authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth, perhaps they would have been thinking, all right, well, what next? You know, there, go therefore to the outskirts of Jerusalem and watch you rain down fiery judgment on those who just recently mocked you and put you to death. Are you you're going to overthrow them, right? Maybe you want us to go to Rome and, and topple Caesar's palace and, and unload all of the treasures of the Roman Empire and give them to the righteous of the earth. Do you want us to gather an army? Or, or perhaps you'll go before us as you went before Joshua and, and chase out and, and wipe the evil from the earth like sandcastles before a tsunami wave so that the meek will inherit the earth. Is this, is this, this what you want us to do, Lord? What great and mighty thing does Jesus have in mind as he draws the disciples' attention to his universal authority? What marching orders would their risen king give them? And this brings us to our second point, Jesus' commission. Jesus' commission. He says to them something that may have initially surprised them in light of the monumental power he's just spoken of. In verse 19, he tells them, Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations. Make disciples? Yes, make disciples. What about, what about executing your judgment on the earth? What about, what about all these grand things that we long for? 
What about bringing in the glory of the age to come, the eternal joys and, and universal peace on earth? What about that, Jesus? Well, the King of Kings has reserved that for himself. That's, that's his prerogative. He's the one who's going to judge the world in righteousness. As, as Paul warned the philosophers of Acts 17, uh, in Athens, in Acts 17, he says, he spoke of the coming day when God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That day is coming. That day of reckoning is coming. But for now, in light of that day, what does the king tell his followers to do? And what is, what is his command to the ungodly of the earth? It's to repent. That's what Paul told the uh, people of, in Acts 17. He says, you know, in light of this, he's called all men everywhere to repent because he's, there's coming a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And to those who have repented, to those who believe on him, he calls us to make disciples to make disciples. And so what is a disciple? What is, what, is, what is Jesus talking about here when he says make disciples? What is this job, that, this task that he's entrusted to us? Well, in his commentary on Matthew, Leon Morris explains that in Matthew's usage, quote, a disciple is both a learner and a follower. A disciple takes Jesus as his teacher and learns from him. A disciple also follows Jesus. The life of a disciple is different because of his attachment to Jesus. The master is not simply giving a command that will secure nominal adherence, you know, just kind of accepting some facts as true in the head, but one that will secure wholehearted commitment to a person. You see, in these days, a disciple did not enroll in a school as much as enrolling with a teacher and following that teacher, submitting to that teacher, submitting to his authority and instruction. I often use, like to use the term followers of Jesus because that, that kind of draws out what a disciple does. We are those whose lives are changed by our attachment to Jesus because we're following him. We're not staying where we have been. We're following wherever he leads us, trusting his, his right to lead us where he pleases as our king and our authority, trusting that where he leads us will be the best place for us to be. A disciple of Jesus is one who commits himself or herself to Jesus in light of the fact that Jesus has first committed himself to us by giving his life for us on the cross as a ransom for our sins, to make us his own. The disciple of Jesus learns as of first importance who Jesus is. They learn the gospel, that Jesus is God in the flesh who has come to save us from our sin. He or she learns the gospel, first of all, the good news that Though we've broken God's law, though we're liable to God's eternal punishment for our sin, 
God in his mercy, in his love, has not left us. He's not given us what we deserve. But rather he's, he's given us, he's blessed us in Christ, giving us what Christ has earned as a reward for his perfect law keeping. Jesus came and kept the law of God perfectly. And then he died on the cross as a substitute in our place, in the place of sinners, in the place of all who would repent and believe upon him. He took the wrath that we deserved and was raised back to life again. This is, this is the first thing that the disciple learns and, and believes in order to become a disciple. They entrust themselves to Jesus through this gospel, trusting him for their eternal life and salvation. And so my question to you this morning is, are you a disciple of Christ? Have you come here perhaps, you know, having heard many sermons, perhaps agreeing with much of what you hear, much of what you've heard, but not having become a disciple, not having committed your life to follow this teacher as your Lord, as your King, as your Savior, not having signed your life away to Him perpetually, always and forever, not just for an hour on Sundays, but your whole life, all of your cherished dreams, every square millimeter of your existence and trusting it to him, saying, you are, you are my king, you are my Lord, you are my savior. I belong to you. Do with me as you please. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you trusting alone in what he has done to gain you eternal life? Or are you still trying to make up for some perceived deficiency? Are you still trying to add to what Christ has done and do enough to earn your way into heaven, hoping that maybe one day you'll pass the test? Or have you given up on that and realized you could never do enough to pay for your sins, but only Christ, that he has paid it all and receiving his salvation as a gift through faith? Are you a disciple? If you have any questions about that, I would plead with you this morning, let today be the day that you not only agree with some truths about Christ, but that you commit your life to him, that you follow him, you become one of his disciples. Well, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. One of the ways uh, of doing this, one of the things he calls us to do is to be making disciples. Just as we follow him, we're called to invite others to do the same. And we're to make disciples of all nations. Now everything else in verses 19 through 20 is describing how to do this. The main verb, the main verb, in, if you're looking at this grammatically, the main thing that Jesus is telling his followers to do is make disciples of all nations. Everything else is, is describing how to do that. Make disciples of all nations teaching them, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And so it's to this that we turn next, the way Jesus instructs us to do it, the way Jesus instructs us to make disciples. Of course, he calls us to make disciples of all nations, so we see that this is a, a universal call 
Earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, um, Jesus had called his disciples not to go to the towns of the Gentiles, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Gospel was to go to the Jew first. But now he is broadening that commission, and he's calling his disciples to go to all the nations, all the people of the, wor- of the world. The king of heaven and earth must have subjects from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And those who believe he is worthy desire that he should be worshipped in every language under heaven. And now, of course, no one of us individually will be able to make a disciple from every single people group and nation in the world. This is something that the disciples of Christ, the followers of Christ, we go about this together as a team. We see this even amongst the 12 apostles. You know, Paul, he focused primarily on the Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the circumcision, to the, to the Jews. And so it's okay to divide up the work, so to speak, as long as we keep in mind that as Christ's people, this is our call to reach all of the nations of the earth. And brothers and sisters, there are still nations and, and tribes and tongues that to our knowledge have not been reached. Those who have never heard of Jesus, those who do not even have a verse of scripture that they can read in their own language, the task is not yet complete. And so may we not forget them as we as we pray and work and give and send and go, you know, no one church will be able to reach every unreached people group, no one person, but, but together as we network with other local churches and as we think about and as we strategize, where shall we send missionaries with this good news? Let us not forget those who have no church in their land, no scripture in their tongue, no one that has told them about Jesus. Let us not forget them. Christ calls us uh, to, to make disciples universally. He instructs us to make disciples baptizing them. They're not to be secret converts that privately follow Jesus and the safety of the invisible shrine of the mind in the seclusion of the secret chambers of the heart. Rather, they're to publicly identify with Christ and, and Christ's people by being baptized, just as, as Tenley did this morning. Baptism is not spoken of as kind of an optional appendage to following Jesus. No, this is the way Christ has called us to make disciples. Make disciples, baptizing them. In the book of Acts, as Christianity spreads, we see that baptism is to be the, the first expression of this allegiance to Christ for those who believe on him. And as we baptize disciples, we're to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this could be translated, for clarity's sake, into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the significance, I think, of being baptized into God's name that we're now identified with God as belonging, as one belonging to him. We're not just, it's not just that the person that is baptizing is baptizing it on behalf of, baptizing the other person on behalf of Jesus, but rather the person that is being baptized is 
being baptized into the name of God. Maybe somewhat similarly to kind of an, an adoption ceremony and you, you're, you're being brought into the, the family of, of another and you, oftentimes you're, you're taking upon yourself their last name in a much more eternal way. In baptism, we're being baptized into God's name. There's, and we notice that, that this is a, a Trinitarian text as well, right? So there's one name, baptized not into the names of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's one name of God that we are baptized into, and yet there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's, that's just worth noting as we, as we pass by that. Another Trinitarian text. Three co-equal, co-eternal persons and yet one God into whose name we are baptized. And just before we move on from this thought, isn't this amazing that God, who is holy, against whom we've sinned, would command that we be baptized into his name? And so cause us who have been morally filthy in his sight, sinners, to be identified eternally with him. And he wants the whole universe to know that this one is mine. They bear my name forever. Christ calls his disciples to make disciples, baptizing them, baptismally. Or to make disciples universally, baptismally, educationally. Or to make disciples, as verse 20 says, teaching them. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So this, what this means is that our job in disciple making isn't done. It hasn't reached the finish line when we bring someone to the baptismal waters. Rather, that's the starting line. The task is just beginning in the Great Commission. And our work now is to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And then, Lord willing, this new disciple will turn around and they will make more disciples for Christ. We're to teach them accountably. We're to teach them accountably. Look at verse 20. Does it say that we're merely to teach them all that I have commanded you. Teaching them all that I have commanded you. Well, no, that, that, that would miss, that would overlook an important word, that word uh, to observe. It's two words in English, but in, in Greek it's one word, which could also be translated to obey. So the idea here is not that, it's, it's we're not just to let them know, hey, here's what Jesus has commanded you to do. But we're also to see that they do it. A good coach doesn't just stand on the sideline with his hands on his hips and say, hey guys, score more points. Get better at your shooting. Get more, get more baskets. No, he, he watches them. He, he looks and he sees where their technique is off. And he says, you know, hey, hey, 32, you know, I noticed you, your technique is bad. Let me help you work on your shot so that you can score more points. And, and brothers and sisters, this is where the local church is critical in, to discipleship and fulfilling the Great Commission. 
The local church is, is Christ's discipleship plan for the believer. It's not God's plan for his young lambs to be born into a harsh world full of wolves and false doctrine, and then just kind of, you're on your own. You've been baptized, and good luck. You know, read your Bible, and I hope you, know, hope you don't get devoured by false teaching and wolves. Now, of course, this God is able to sustain and protect every one of his own, but God also uses means to do that. And one of the means that God has appointed for the protection and for the strengthening of his people is the local church. This is one of the ways in which he strengthens the young lambs, is that he, he brings them together with other believers so that they can encourage one another in their newfound faith. This is what we see all throughout the book of Acts, that wherever the gospel goes and is believed, local churches are formed. Local churches are formed. And in these local churches, in God's wisdom, he, he ordains pastors who are also called shepherds or overseers or elders. And they're tasked with the job of shepherding the flock of God, which is among them, 1 Peter 5. Overseeing, keeping watch over their souls. Like a watchful shepherd who, who stands between the flock and the wolves keeping the wolves of sin at bay so that the flock can graze safely in the green pastures. I appreciate what one wise pastor has written about this in, in a discussion of how the Great Commission, it really envisions church planting. It's not merely about telling people the good news, but also making sure that churches are planted. The work of missions, in other words, it, we have to we need to make sure that the new believers are planted in churches where they can grow in their faith or else our task is not complete. So uh, this pastor writes, quote, the manner in which the rest of the New Testament talks about teaching reinforces the idea that the Great Commission's command to teach envisions church planting. You can see this in the fact that churches are given shepherds to teach them. They're not given lecturers. They're not given podcast preachers or information booth attendants. They're given shepherds who combine both teaching and overseeing, right? It doesn't say, just teach them what I've commanded you. It says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Don't just give them the information See that they carry it out. See that they're living it out. Help them in that process. Jesus wants disciples, not merely decisions. He wants people whose lives are fashioned and shaped by the teaching of Scripture. This is the work of the Great Commission. So brothers and sisters, this is why the Great Commission, while it's not about less than just sharing the gospel with those who have never heard, it's certainly about much more than that. The Great Commission is also about teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. It's about planning churches where people commit to Christ and to one another and help one another to know not only what he's commanded, but also to live it out together. We're to teach them accountably. We're to teach them comprehensively, make disciples 
of all nations, teaching, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All that Christ has commanded. That's why we want to, that's why my, my goal is not just to only preach on certain topics, but to preach the whole counsel of God, as Paul sought to do in the book of Acts. To, to go through, to, to realize that all of Scripture is for our good and for our building up, and we need every single verse of it. We need to teach them all that Christ has commanded. Now, as we do this, of course, we need to keep watch over our own lives. We need to make sure that we're doing all that Christ has commanded. But our responsibility doesn't end with ourselves. We have a responsibility to others, to these other disciples, as, as I've been saying. We want to guard, though, against having a Ph.D. in the sins of others and only a preschool understanding of our own. We must tend the weeds in our own garden first and foremost, even as we, you know, if we see that our neighbor's garden is on fire, <laughs> We don't just turn a blind eye and say, well, that's, you know, that's between them and God. We're called to help one another in the fight against sin, patiently pointing them to Christ, even as we are seeking to run after Christ and obey all of his commands. So Christ calls his disciples to make disciples, not only baptismally, but educationally, and that education in an accountable and comprehensive way. And so IBC, Emmanuel Baptist Church, though I'm sure there's much in this text that challenges us, you know, as we think about it, there's, we probably all see areas where we could do more. I also want to encourage you, as I've been encouraged by this text this week, you know, I've often thought of the Great Commission too narrowly. When I, when I would think Great Commission... What do we often do? We, we visualize a missionary trudging through the jungle to bring the gospel to a remote village. Ah, oh, man, they're fulfilling the Great Commission. You know, if I was really spiritual, I'd be doing the same. And, and it's true that what that missionary is doing is vital. It's so important. But, brothers and sisters, they're not the only ones who can fulfill the Great Commission. They're not the only ones who are fulfilling it. You know, of course, we might say, well, yes, those sending them and supporting them, they're also helping to fulfill the Great Commission. But, brothers and sisters, the Great Commission is broader even than that. What about, when we think of Great Commission, do we ever visualize a prayer meeting here in our humble auditorium on a Sunday morning? Or two church members talking over lunch about how they can apply the sermon to their lives this week. Right there in the fellowship hall after the service. That, that's also fulfilling the Great Commission. Because you're helping another believer. You're, you're teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. You can do it right here in Springdale, Arkansas this Sunday morning. What about, do we visualize when we think of the Great Commission, a, a father reading the Bible to his children in the evening around the dinner table, or a mother uh, training her children in obedience to Christ. They too are fulfilling the Great Commission. What about, uh, what about the couple that 
wants to work on their marriage, receive biblical marriage counseling. And, and so they go and they, they humbly you know, ask for help. And the counselor who gives them counseling, that's fulfilling the Great Commission as well. Teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded, including his commands for our marriages, for our families. Even in our gathering this moment, this morning, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, we have been fulfilling the Great Commission. As you sit here and as you think about this message and as you think about how to apply it to your lives this week, how to help others apply it, you are fulfilling the Great Commission. As we had the opportunity to celebrate Tenley's baptism, we're fulfilling the Great Commission as a church even this morning. And so brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you that already I see so many of you doing things and you are fulfilling the Great Commission. You are playing an important role in this work. Even if you never set foot out of Springdale, Arkansas. So keep up the good work. Let us strive to, to always be diligent in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so to summarize, you know, what are the risen king's marching orders? As Jesus' disciples were commanded to make disciples in the way he has instructed as Jesus' disciples, in light of his universal authority, we're commanded to make disciples in the way he has instructed, universally, of all nations, baptismally, educationally, accountably, comprehensively. And brothers and sisters, when that task seems daunting, let us remember Jesus' final words in the Gospel of Matthew. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Just as he told Joshua when he faced the challenge of going into the land of Canaan full of walled cities and giants, as we look about in this evil world in which we live, as we think about following Christ in this crooked generation, as we think about making disciples, when that task seems daunting, let us remember that the King of kings and Lord of lords is with us, saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is helping us in this task. Though he's not with us physically at this moment, you know, we long to see him face to face, to depart and be with Christ is far better, yet there is a sense in which he is with us spiritually, and he is helping us. He is with us for the purpose of helping us fulfill this great commission. He's not left us alone he is with us all the days to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for not only calling us from darkness to light, pardoning our sins as a free gift of your grace, but Lord, also giving us the privilege of serving in your service and of inviting others into your kingdom, into your salvation. Lord, what a joy this work is. What a challenge it can be. But Lord, you have not left us alone, and you are able to do great wonders through your people as you have done in ages past. So Lord, help us. Show us, Lord, how we can be fulfilling the Great Commission this week, this afternoon. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.